This is Sean, and you're listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself, whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there. I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. This week, I sit down with Edgar Cherry, co-founder of Simix Labs. Simix aims to replace every blood test and injection needed for IVF with a simple, wearable patch. We chat about the IVF process, Edgar's own journey through it, the struggles that inspired him to establish Simix, how a biosensor patch might alleviate pain for other couples, the potential applications of such technology, and leading the way with empathy. A heads up, we do talk about miscarriage in this episode. Otherwise, please enjoy my discussion with Edgar Cherry. All right. Today on the show, I welcome Edgar Cherry, one of the co-founders of Simix Labs. Simix is developing a wearable biosensor patch that can continuously track hormone levels. The current application of this technology is being used for fertility treatment, but we can talk about other potential avenues this kind of technology could be used in the future. Edgar, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Thank you for your patience and actually getting ourselves to recording stage. It's been a little while. Edgar, for anybody who hasn't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, how would you best describe yourself and what you're trying to do with Simex Labs? Sure. So my background is technical. So I've done uh, electronics engineering. I also got a master's by research degree as well from Amber Uni and really working medical devices really for about 15 to 16 years as an engineer, but also leading technical teams. And really what we're doing now with CMX is basically our mission is to develop, a, as you said, a wearable hormone tracking device or platform really that can be used in different applications. One of the applications that hopefully we can talk a little about would be fertility, helping fertility treatment, which I'm very, very passionate about, I should say. Yep. And we can dive into the source of your passion in a little bit. Let's actually start off with fertility treatment. A lot of people would be aware of the term IVF, but it is only one of the possible avenues that someone might um, look into for fertility treatment. So could you talk us through what options there are in this space and what the pros and cons might be of all of these options? Sure, sure. So uh, I guess the first thing is to say is that uh, I myself, I'm, I'm not a clinician, right? So this is just really from, from what I, I understood, you know, learning, basically trying to conceive as well, you know, have, having a child with my wife. So basically at the start of our journey, we tried for at least six months using the charting apps when you can check the period and when you're menstruating and that did not work out for us. And then we had to start using some of the ovulation predictor kits, the OPKs that you buy at the pharmacy to try to predict a little bit better the ovulation. And again, that did not work out for us. Luciana, my wife, she's the one that did not actually like those, you know, talking about pros and cons. Because obviously you have to be on the stick every day in the morning and you have to do it as you're getting ready to get to work, you know, because it has to be in the morning when the hormone concentration at its highest in the urine. And it's not very hygienic, right? So you don't like those. And eventually we have to go for, uh, uh, obviously a more sophisticated type of treatment, which what we call, uh, ART, assisted reproductive technologies, basically after seeing a GP and then he said, okay, maybe it's best time to see an IVF, my doctor, which are much, much more 
complex uh, type of treatment. Right. Okay. So it sounds like for you, IVF treatment was sort of the third or fourth option. When would someone actually consider seeking IVF treatment? How accessible is it actually? Well, it's a good question. It's not cheap, first of all. <laughs> I guess it depends a lot on obviously the actual conditions of what the issues might be. I should say that it's 50% of the issues come from the female, 50% come from the male. And depending on the actual issues that it might be, that's why you have to do screening tests, blood tests, you know, ultrasounds in conjunction with the doctor to understand what, what is going on, why you're not falling pregnant, right? And then you can have fallopian tubes, for example, they are blocked. You can have endometriosis or the sperm is not really motile enough, right? It's not reaching the egg. So depending on each one of these conditions, this is when the doctor will basically be able to, to prepare a plan really for you. And, and this is where obviously the cost will be estimated at that point in time. Okay, so let's say someone does actually go down this path and they seek out IVF. What are some of the risks that people might need to consider? It's a very grueling experience, really, for everybody trying to do this type of treatment, you know, physically and mentally. And usually you don't know what you're actually embarking on before it is your first time, obviously. So trying to understand a little bit more with the counselors that these IVF clinics provide, discuss with them, understand the physical injections, what's going to happen with your body throughout, with the women specifically. You're injecting on quite a few hormones. You're doing a stimulated cycle specifically. And you're actually injecting quite a lot of hormones, really. And then that can obviously alter a lot your health in many ways, right? Your mental state, really. You could consider it as a risk. Obviously, there are other types of risks. It's uh, when you're collecting the eggs as well, my understanding. And I should reiterate that I'm not a clinician, uh, right, Sean? But as you're collecting the eggs, obviously, there are some risks there. Uh, it, can be, it can be done in full or uh, anesthesia, for example. There are, there are quite a few risks that depends really on each clinical case. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously understand that you're not a clinician, so this is not medical advice for anybody who's listening. This is just a rough overview of the space that Edgar is playing in. Just on that note, in that case, are you able to supply us with any rough statistics about perhaps how many people seek out IVF and when they do what those success rates are like? Well, I can definitely talk to you about the number of cycles a year. So in Australia, they are about 90 to 100 cycles done a year. So in a past IVF cycle, it's a combination of stimulating and frozen embryo transplant cycles and other types of cycles. In the US, it's about 300,000 in essence. And in Japan, for example, there's also high incidence rates as well of IVF cycles, which is about 450, for example. So one in six couples basically are affected by infertility worldwide, which obviously is the ability to fall pregnant after 12 months of trying, right? And the success rate, I probably wouldn't go there because there are many different considerations. Again, you know, you can consider what is a success rate. It's an implantation, is it a viable pregnancy, or is it a live birth rate, for example. And depending on each one of these stages, right, do your success rate really, really changes. You've sort of touched on the fact that you were quite passionate about this space earlier on. I'm curious, what actually got you to make this space your mission? And if you're happy to share, what was the personal story behind it? Well, it's just really primarily the difficulties, right, that uh, my wife and I had, you know, when we're trying to have a child. And it took us maybe five years, actually even longer than that, maybe seven years from actually saying, hey, let's have a kid. And then starting, as I was saying earlier, starting trying naturally and then not being able to conceive and then starting to get more specialized treatment and then just the constant 
blood tests, as well as the constant injections from the medications as well. Seeing the, the arm and the belly bruised from my wife, I think it was like, wow, um, this is, this is something here. You know, this is pretty, pretty full on really for her. And uh, we did, we were able to conceive as well, I should say, but that pregnancy did not actually continue at some stage. It was a big, big issue for us. So that's why we, I worked in the technical field for so long and I worked in medical devices. I thought, why not developing something here for other couples that uh, can potentially alleviate and reduce that pain, right? Make their life a little bit easier for them. How can we make their life a little bit easier for them? How can we reduce the mental and physical pain from them? And yeah, this is really, this sensor specifically is just really one, one small aspect really of what we're trying to achieve as well in the long term. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for sharing your story, Edgar. My thoughts with you and your partner. And I'm glad that you spurred that on to do something positive with it and to assist others who are potentially facing the same challenge as well. And you've just actually touched on um, something about how you've gone about trying to solve this problem. Um, And you said you'd leverage your background in engineering to do it. So I'm wondering how you started looking at solving this problem from an engineering lens, was there anything uh, about being an engineer that you thought would be most useful to try and solve this? I think uh, the, to answer that the question, probably to explain a little bit what this device sensor is going to do, right? So this is still, by the way, a work in progress, very much work in progress. The company was incorporated really only last year. You always, as an engineer, what do you do? You, you, do you try to reinvent the wheel? No, you don't, right? <laughs> You try to see what's out there, you know, before, and then how can we, I guess, uh, learn really from those experiences, other types of devices and, and try to see if we can use that in line with what we're trying to achieve. So the sensor, the sensor itself, again, the visual of the sensor, a small wearable device that you put in the upper arm and can, through a small flexible wire, extract interstitial fluid, so not blood, and then hormones, progesterone, estradiol, luteinizing hormone, as well as ACG for pregnancy detection are extracted from the tissue fluid and then detected. And then again, that information will be sent to the cloud and then the IVF doctors, the nurses, I should say, they're going to make the right clinical decisions there. So going back to your question, I think if you think about the continuous glucometry devices, right? What are the two, what are the two devices or two technologies these days that can actually measure biomarkers in real time? Primarily, it's just really glucose monitors or pulse oximetry, right? Or, or oxygen saturation. And the, the glucose monitors, they've been quite successful as well. And we learned really from them many, many different things. You know, how does the probe look like? What sort of materials do they use? How does the sensor stay on the skin for two weeks? That's a massive engineering challenge as well. And then you got all the more complicated biochemistry challenges. You got biofouling and you got non-specific binding as well. So all these different learnings from the CGMs, from the continuous glucometer devices, we looked at that and then we're trying to parallel path, really adopting some of these designs into our sensor at this stage. But I should say it's, it's a work in progress. Yeah, absolutely. And I would expect that you would never stop developing on something. You would keep trying to improve what you have. Speaking of which, you're full-time on Simex and you do have a couple of partners that you work with who still split their time between Simex and other companies. What would it take for them to come on board and join you full-time to actually push the product development here? The other co-founders, you mean? That's a great question. It's just really capital, right? It's just really capital, primarily. Obviously, 
you have to be able to sustain yourself financially, right? And, and sustain your family. And that's why uh, I'm really working hard to see how can we support really the other co-founders to join the company full-time. Mohammed is the other co-founder. He's got also the same vision. We work really well together. We worked the last couple of companies for 10 years together, nearly 10 years. And really, he's also very keen, right? He's also very keen. But again, it's the able to make the transition. You need to think about how we're going to be supporting financially because he understands actually his second child was also IVF, you know? Um, and so he understands really well the, the journey too. Yeah, great. Actually, you mentioned that you've been working with Mohammed for over 10 years. If you were to look back at your working relationship or your past experiences at the other companies you've worked with, has there been anything from your past experiences that has been translatable to developing the product that you have now? Yes, absolutely. I think, first of all, building medical devices is highly regulated, obviously, industry. So the process is well known. Once you've done it a few times, you understand what are the risks, risk management plan that you need to put in place, your QMS that you need to put in place, and so on and so forth. In terms of the technology, I worked in another company called Orsavia as well, for 10 years with Mohammed, and we were developing wearable devices for lumbar spine monitoring. So understanding simple concepts like there has to be a small four factor, right? It can't be like a bulky type of sensor. It has to be able to stay on the skin for a few hours. You can person, you're not expecting the sensor to fall off and then pick it up and put it back on the on body, right? So basic things like that definitely helped a lot. Really, the design, the trajectory really of this biosensor that we're working on. Now, let's talk about this biosensor and where Simix fits into the whole IVF landscape or fertility landscape. So if you were to give a rundown of the whole IVF process, what step is Simix actually focusing on right now? So the event proposition for us is to be able to replace the blood tests, right? The constant blood tests that women have to do. Broadly, they are, let's call it probably just two buckets just to make things simple, right? So let's say there's the simulated cycle. And you've got what we call a frozen egg transfer cycle or a fat cycle, right? So the embryo's already frozen, you throw it up and do the implantation. In a stimulated cycle, there are, in average, about four to five blood tests carried out throughout the treatment. What we want to do is basically replace those blood tests with our sensor. So not only after talking to, to doctors, they said that if they could have more information about the hormone levels, if they would want to have that information, they will say yes, but they can't because they can't just really ask women again to take more blood tests. So if this sensor can actually not just measure only five or 10 times, for example, and the women doesn't have to go to the lab, miss work, take time off work, then it will be awesome. It will be fantastic. This is what we're discussing. We went doing market research and then really love the idea. So in a typical stimulated cycle, you want to test three hormones primarily. You want to test the estradiol. You want to test the progesterone as well, NLH2. And at the end of the cycle, so that means when the eggs have been collected, have been inseminated with the sperm, and you have a, a, an actual embryo, right? Then you want to definitely test the progesterone, which is a good indicator that the lining of the uterus is actually thickening. It's, it's going to receive well the, the embryo. But also the ACG is, is the main biomarker to try to detect that there's been, a, there's been an implantation of the embryo we call. So I guess what I'm saying here, there are two parts. One is the start of the cycle, when you're preparing, doing the suppressing of an age and doing the injections of SH, for example. And this is the end of the cycle when the embryo has been implanted. You need to track whether there's a successful implantation. So our device will be able to monitor these three hormones at the start and the other two hormones, ACG and progesterone at the end of the cycles. Okay, got it. 
Now, if someone were to do a little bit of digging on Simex Labs, they might come across the term lab on a chip. Can you explain more what you mean by that concept and how that works? Oh, lab on a chip is just really, it's only like a buzzword, I should say. It's more really being able to detect these hormones in a small piece of dye or, or silicon, right? And this dye or this piece of silicon basically has uh, what we call uh, patterns and then electrodes as well, as well as bioreceptors. Obviously, the hormones need to bind specifically to these bioreceptors so that you can actually detect the right information. You can't have, for example, a biomarker that is not related to the hormone that you want to detect binds to your hormone and then suddenly you got false positives, for example. You don't want that. So the concept is really more about compact, small, dying a chip and buying to the right uh, hormones. That's really, it's more of a buzzword, I should say, uh, showing the lab on a chip. Got it. Good to know. You've touched on this briefly with your past experience at previous companies about understanding how to navigate the regulatory landscape. I've definitely heard people who invest in startups say things like, oh, we don't invest in industries that have a single point of failure for their success. For example, regulatory approval in biotech companies. So for someone like yourself who has knowledge of this regulatory landscape, can you share what that is and how confident you feel that you might get the approval that you need? It's a great question. It's a great question. I think what they're referring to is basically you do all the technical work, right? You might actually do all your market research just to realize that the FDA or the TJ thinks that it's a high-risk device and therefore they'll not be able to approve it or they, or they might be asking lots of questions and get you to the clinical trials, right? Uh, long clinical trials to prove the efficacy and the safety of your device. I think for us, in, in many ways, it's primarily risk-based, not all, but it's primarily risk-based. So we are not really a super high-risk application in terms of safety. And, and all we're doing here is providing uh, the capabilities of monitoring the hormones, right? We're quantifying the hormones. We're not actually claiming that with this particular device, you might have a, a better chance, for example, of getting pregnant. This is for the clinicians to be able to make the call. The clinicians are the ones, okay, so I got a little bit more information here rather than just a single or every other day type of blood tests. I got more information. Is this going to help me now to actually make a better decision now? So therefore, going back to your question, there are predicate devices, right? So predicate devices like a device that has been already approved and you look at them and say, okay, our intended use is very similar to this predicate device, but it, in this is a technology. We think that the device is, is low risk and therefore the risk, as you mentioned before, for us, luckily we believe that it's going to be a little bit on the lower, lower end. I should mention that we usually do this in conjunction with the TGA and the FDA to give you the right classifications, but we're confident that's not going to be the case really for us that as you said, there's going to be a single point of failure and therefore we can't progress. So yeah, we're confident about that. Okay, great. Now let's talk about something we alluded to at the very start of the conversation, which is the potential for other uses of this technology. I could think of a few off the top of my head, but I'd love to hear what you think. What other ways could you leverage the patch that you're developing for other medical purposes? Sure. We are talking as well with other clinicians outside of the IVF space. So polycystic ovarian syndrome as well, or PCOS, right? It's another condition that affects many women worldwide. 70% actually of that condition goes undiagnosed actually today. And it's actually more of a metabolic disorder, really, an insulin resistance. Because of that, the women start to develop the cysts in the ovaries, right? And there are some, there are three, according to the protein criteria, you should be 
Anovulating usually have traces of what we call hyperandrogenism, meaning have male hormones elevated body. And really, this is what we think that this device can help us with. It's basically being able to measure through, for example, free testosterone. Has this woman potentially be, has she got traces of PCOS? Because it's not very easy to detect or to diagnose, I should say. So PCOS is definitely one of them that we're actually exploring with some clinicians as well. It's an adjacent type of application. Uh, preeclampsia, this is for high-risk pregnancies, really. And there are some biomarkers as well to think about these things as a platform. There are the biomarkers as well that we can try to adapt our technology to try to detect, to provide the information early on to clinicians when it comes as well. Some of there are SFLTs or PG, PGLF as well that we can try to use. Our focus is still definitely get to market in the RVS space and make sure that our device is really exactly as the gold standard. And then if when the time is right and we feel that they strategically we can make the decision to go to other adjacent areas, then we we'll definitely work closely with the clinicians to ensure there's a right value position. But, but key to hear as well about the other, of when you say off the top of your head about other applications that this one could be used. Oh, well, I was thinking even something as simple as sleep tracking, for example, it is a hormone controlled activity to a certain degree. And well, there's probably a lot of competition in that space already, but it's absolutely a problem that a lot of people worldwide face. So, uh, perhaps, you know, interesting thought starter for you, maybe. Yeah. Interesting. Good idea. All right. Now. Given the kind of data that you collect and something that's occurred in the news relatively recently with the 23andMe data breach and a whole lot of DNA data has been leaked out onto the web, how do you think you'll go about actually securing this information? Because it could be used for nefarious purposes, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I think for us, uh, we're not at that stage yet, obviously. This is more in the future for us. But I think having the right privacy and the right security protocols is massively important. So encryption, different type of, we call TLS2, TLS3.0, double security encryption algorithms that we can use really to protect sensor data as well as patient data. And then obviously when that information is accessed by the uh, IVF service providers, you know, having the right security, the APIs so that they can retrieve data security is massively important, obviously. But uh, yeah, I should mention that really for us is more really in the future when I'm in the stage yet. Yeah, wonderful. And that is a fantastic segue into talking about Simex's future. If we were to look, let's say the next six months or 12 months or so, what's on your radar? What are your next steps? Yes, what we need to do now, Sean, is we need to be able to show that we can actually basically extract interstitial fluid and detect at least one of the four hormones for us and then compare those results of our sensor against the gold standard. And I say this very carefully because it's a big and ambitious goal, you know. <laughs> the the CGMs have taken a long time to get to this stage that they are, and we're learning from them, as I said before. Our application is, we don't need to be providing like lots of data in real time to the, to the nurses. And by the way, we're working very closely with Monash IVF as well on this. So Monash IVF, Kimonis, our clinical partners and investors as well. So we're learning a lot from them. But in the next year and a half, if we're able to provide validation in basic form, you know, that we can actually extract interstitial fluid and through this interstitial fluid detect LH, for example, and go, that's comparable against the big clinical lab analyzers. And that will be a, a massive, massive win for us. That's at a technical level, obviously, and at a company level, we continue to develop our team, continue to develop our vision and fine tune our mission and vision really for people just understanding what we're trying to do and 
come and support us potentially. Yeah, great. Okay, so there's two questions I have coming out of that. Firstly, you mentioned that you're already working pretty closely with Monash IVF. I was wondering if there's any other dream organizations you want to partner with in the near future. And secondly, you said you'd hope to build out your team. So I'm wondering what kind of skills you're looking for. Yeah, sure. I think the organizations, it's a tricky question, right? Because if I say one organization, then the other might not like it. So yeah. <laughs> I think the big, big CGM companies, Abbott and, and Medtronic and Dexcom, right? They obviously know the whole, they have the know-how, they have the supply chain as well. And the QC controls and processes for this and the muscle really to be able to deliver a, a program like this. It's the natural option. Other plays, not so much in diabetes, but in actual productive health, like Cooper Surgical, nice companies, big companies to be partnered with as well, because we can really learn a lot from them. And to your second question about the team, well, well, we're looking at expanding. So we're looking at primarily looking at what we call system engineers. They want to obviously looking at the system level, architectural level. And uh, basically translate what we call the user needs or the patient or the stakeholders needs into what we call a product requirements, product specification, then understand really and deliver the work really to the electronics engineer, to the software engineers, but also be able to help with, for example, with the marketing, some of the learnings about what the, the users need. That's going to be something that's going to be used to interact user maintenance, for example, trading as well, where with our marketing teams. So these are some areas, system engineer. Definitely mechanical engineers in biochemistry. Obviously, the core really of this technology lies in the biochemistry slash electrochemistry. And then we were lucky in the US, we were in the US in August a couple of months ago. And we met with a few groups over there that can potentially help us because they've done this before at a CGM level. Now we want to do a wearable hormone tracking platform. Well, I hope that partnership uh, grows into something fruitful. If we were to look at the long-term vision of, of what you're actually trying to achieve here. If everything goes right for you and for Simix Labs, what do you think the world will look like? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, what I would be great to see, given all that we've been through, if a couple couldn't unfortunately conceive naturally, they go to an IVF clinic. Ideally, we have basically the full solution, right? So the woman goes to the clinic, gets the sensor, but somehow the sensor not only measures the hormones, but also delivers the drugs as well in the injection of the stage hormones. And then at the same time, you actually measure the response. That'll be really the full solution. At this stage, the sensor, you basically reduce the number of blood tests, but the women will still need to do the injections to stimulate the follicles. So what, what I want really is to eliminate that or it reduces as much as we can, that constant injections. Really. So they show you wearing the sensor, you'll be delivering the drugs as well as tracking the hormones. That'll be amazing. Yeah. And obviously, given your description uh, of the experience beforehand, eliminate a lot of pain as well, both physical and emotional. Exactly. Yeah. And given that there's a lot of product development that needs to happen before you get there, what do you think you personally need to strive to to help get to that vision? Yes, there's a lot of product development. You're right. I think, I think, um, it's a good question as well. I think leadership in many ways, right? So leadership is an important skill, really, that I need to develop more in empathy towards people. So I think like we obviously we can't do this thing by ourselves, right? Not just really there's a lot of product development that, that needs to be done, but again, the message. And we're starting as well as startup, right? Obviously your resources are limited. How do you convince people to embark on this journey with you? And they might be having another job already, a full-time job, but for some reason, 
you inspired me enough. And they basically I will be saying, no, I got a full-time job, but you know what? I'm going to be helping you in this journey. I can do maybe do five, eight hours for you because I'm very passionate about this. So I actually hear a lot about this. Our current program manager, she's very passionate about it. Finance managers as well. And I guess that leadership and empathy, how can I develop that more and more? That is going to help more in the long term, really, for us throughout this journey. Wonderful. Leadership and empathy, what a great way to finish the conversation. Edgar, thank you so much for your time today. The last thing I'll get you to do is to share any social media or contact info in case people are curious about what you're doing and wanting to find out more about Simix Labs. Sure, sure. You can find me, obviously, on LinkedIn, Edgar Cherry. And we also got, obviously, a CMX Labs LinkedIn page, too. If you want to start following us over there, thumbs up. We've got regular updates about the positions that we're offering as well. We need roles or other relevant, really, news about this journey, fertility that we're going through. Otherwise, thanks so much for, for having me here, Sean. Not a problem at all. Thank you once again, Edgar. That's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm. Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is promise.